We believe you have a story to share. For 2,000 years, humankind has believed in the power of story. In healthcare, we're finding ways to better heal those who are in front of us. Join us as we explore healing stories now. Well, I want to welcome everyone to another edition of Healing Stories. And it's my great honor to be with Christine Forner today, whose book, Disassociation, Mindfulness, and Creative Meditations, is a real, a real treasure. And Christine, as we do with every guest on Healing Stories podcast, we begin with just one question, and it's, could you tell us who you are? <laughs> Um, I'm a licensed, I'm a clinical therapist up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I'm a clinical social worker. So my background is in, um, social work. Uh, we might be visited by guests as we, as I sit here with my animals that come visit. Um, I have been in the healing profession of one way or another since I was 16. I started working at a youth, uh, on a youth teen line when I was little, um, and, I was, I, you know, it, it always shocks me how I was dealing with some pretty intense suicide phone calls back when I was like 16 and 17 years old. And it always struck me because I, I was able to do it and it never bothered me. Like I, my heart re went out to these people and I never got frightened by what they were saying. I never, um, like I clearly remember being very grounded when they were speaking. And so um, I never would let my children do what I did, uh, but I was working with some very intense things. And then I went and got a diploma from social work because I do have a writing disability. So I've, I had struggled going through school. Um, so I got a diploma in social work first and my first practicum, the first place I ever went, I had my choice. I, I was very young at the time. I was like 18, 19. And I wanted to work with teens and adolescents and youths. I didn't, then that was a population I wanted to specialize in. And they offered me a practicum at a senior citizen's home. And that felt very, very, very far away from me. But the other practicum that they offered me was public education at a sexual assault center. I didn't really want to do that either. But my options were between at least I'd get some contact with youths working in this, in the sexual assault center versus um, working with senior citizens. So I do remember working um, in that job and it, it bothered me a lot. Like I actually threw up the first couple of times that I was exposed to this area of the world. I, it, it shocked me. Um, fast forward, uh, another, I went back and got a degree in um, women's studies and I ended up working in a women's shelter for quite a few years. I ended up having a child. I found it really too difficult to work in a women's shelter and see all those faces. I could not separate their little face from my son's face. Um, so I started applying at jobs that I really had no business applying to, but this was back in the 90s and you could still do this. So I ended up getting mentored and hired at an organization that specialized in working with women. It was uh, a low, low fee. So people didn't have to pay anything. They could pay anywhere from, I think it was $10 to $100 per session. So most of the people that I was seeing was paying like $10 to $30 to $50 a session. There was no time limit either. So people could see us for years without being stopped because most organizations, you get eight or 10 sessions and that's it. And in this organization, we could see people for years. So, um, and it was, it was for women only. So that's just the perfect recipe for complex trauma survivors. 
And so my very first clients were these incredibly traumatized people. And I think in, in really in my case, ignorance was bliss. I didn't know that I was dealing with things as difficult as I was dealing with. I was just listening to the clients and listening to what they had to say. And it's, it's them who really taught me how to be a therapist with my mentors whenever I had difficulty. And so my very first client was actually a diagnosed um, dissociative identity disorder person which is like probably one of the hardest clients you can ever have in your caseload. And it made sense to me. I read some books. I read a gentleman named Colin Ross. He's, you know, luckily now today, I, I would find it funny. We're very good friends today. We're colleagues today. Um, so I just, I started working with this dissociative disorder and it made perfect sense to me. And then when I started going back into the world, going back and getting my master's, my, my bachelor's and my master's after I had all three of my kids, that's when I started realizing that there was this quote unquote controversy out there about all this stuff. And it boggled my mind because it was just so obvious and so evident that there was so much injury inside of these humans that their system, it was incapable of amalgamating the information of their lives, that their system was intentionally and purposefully spreading information. And it always just, it just made perfect sense to me. And I was just so boggled by it didn't. And so the more I got into the world of dissociation, the more I started realizing that I was uh, in fact an anomaly, that, that not a lot of people learn, know about dissociation. Not a lot of people learn about dissociation. And now that I've been in this business for a long time, this is, I think, my 22nd or 23rd year in private practice. At any given time, I have 10 to 15 people with multiplicity of various levels on my caseload and have had for, for over 20 years. Um, they're a population that makes a great deal of sense to me. And I just, I'm here just to devilify them. I'm, I'm here to bring in information that what they go through through we all go through if we went through what they go through all of your story is one of mending and dignity and when you go out on the internet as we all do right uh, you are producing this sense to the consciousness of our world that you can mend your life uh, but, but why is that so hard uh, 13,000 clients I think I've seen have come and, and be with you. What is it about us as human beings that make it so hard to not disassociate, but to integrate? Well, I, pain. Honestly, I think it's, it's as simple as pain. And I have wondered about this question for a long, long time myself, having my, my first background being in women's studies. I was again shocked, right? I, I sort of walk into these things haphazardly, not really thinking or planning or what I'm doing. I couldn't get into social work because I had really bad grades. I was, uh, um, I was, I, I literally do have a writing disability, which is odd because I've written lots of books and I've written articles. I figured out how to do it much later in life. But when I was in, I couldn't get into any classes and women's studies were all free, right? They, they were all available. So you could take unclassified classes at the university. So you didn't have to be full-time registered, but you could still pick up these classes and nobody wanted to take them. So I was taking them and they were still to this day, the most powerful learning that I've ever experienced in my whole entire life. It, it was, it was eye-opening. So I've been wondering this for a long, long time. And I actually suspect that it has something to do with when we look at our neurobiology and you look inside what creates a human being and what makes us a homo sapiens sapien, what makes us a different species than any other species, 
we have brain structures that other creatures do not have. They're, they're lying in this thing, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which is even a higher brain structure than the prefrontal cortex. It's the last brain structure to finish growing. It wraps, it's at the very front of the brain and it wraps around and touches those brain stem reptilian mammalian um, brain parts that we all have. And the ventral medial prefrontal cortex is in charge of nine different things. It's in charge of regulating our fear. It's in charge of handling emotion. It's in charge of including painful emotion, like being present with painful emotion is the most difficult thing for a human being to do. Um, being present, it, it, it updates our old procedurally learned files because we, we learn through procedure. We don't really learn through language. We learn through doing and then language comes secondary. So, um, you know, when we're driving at the beginning, we don't know, we like look at the key and we look at the, the hole in the key and we're very conscious of what we're doing. But over time, that consciousness actually absorbs too much attention. It absorbs too much brain power. And so it gets moved into the unconscious of, of what we don't have to pay attention to and it's still safe. So how we are treated, how we are um, experienced in the world, that all goes into the unconscious. We don't know about it. Um, I can't remember what famous psychology said, but it's unconscious is unconscious. You don't know about it. And a lot of the trauma tries to, and actually lives in that unconscious area. So the, the other brain structures are in charge of like introspection, being able to go inside and, and feel yourself. They're in charge of empathy, of not just feeling, you know, knowing that another person's suffering, but actually physiologically feeling it we can actually physically feel what other people feel. And when all these front brain structures are working properly, we do everything in our power to not hurt other people. So we have brain structures that are designed to be very compassionate, very attuned, very present, very connected, very loving. That's why a lot of these words are so delicious to us because we're so starving for it because it's part of who we are. It's in our neurobiology. And so I'm starting to, the last couple of years, I've really started looking into sort of paleoanthropology. Who were we 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago? And it occurred to me, because I'm, I'm actually on the side, I'm writing a novel about what life was like. I'm actually going to write six of them because I'm trying to put all of this into stories. Um, in doing a little bit of research, most of the paleoanthropologists of the late 1900s or late 1800s, early 1900s, these were these were very high class um, white men. These were men who, you know, when you take a look at who was running the, the British Geological Society and who was in these, these geological societies, they were of upper class. They were not women. They were not people of color. They were not people of poverty. So we're getting this very small, small world view about the world. And a lot of these men, because they were raised in upper class, most of them were likely not raised by their parents. But they were raised by nannies. They were shipped off into boarding schools at a very early age. So likely most of these men had severe attachment disorders. And they're looking through the world trying to normalize their severe attachment disorders. So when they look at the fossils, they see men attacking men. They see humans attacking humans when actually it turns out it's predation, that human beings were food. So you go back 10, 20, 30, 100,000 years ago, and you think about all the things that wanted to eat us based on the fossils of what actually ate us. Cheetahs, lions, dogs, um, hippopotamuses, 
crocodiles, birds. At one point in time, there's something like 25 different species of saber-toothed tigers running around. And if you're a lion or a saber-toothed tiger and you have your option of chasing a zebra or chasing a human, a human whom the more they became human, the weaker we became. Our muscle strength somewhere around 2 million years ago went from our bodies to, to our brains. Um, we don't have teeth like other animals. We don't have claws like other animals. We don't see well in the dark. Our senses are dulled compared to other animals. Who are you going to go for? You're going to go eat the human. That human is the junk food of Africa. And the only way we could have survived was in being in relatively large groups of about 150 people. That seems to be the magic number, keeping each other safe. There is no way that half of that population, that, that the whole group would have survived if half of the population was dangerous to the other half of the population. Misogyny did not exist. Patriarchy did not exist. Racism did not exist. It couldn't have, because if you pop out and make yourself elite, something's going to come and eat you. You're going to make yourself seen invisible. So there is this neurobiological underpinning of, of being in a connected group. However, when we get stressed, when we get traumatized, those brain structures go offline or get the information gets turned off. So our humanity goes away the more injured we are. We become more mammalian. We become more um, primitive. We become more reactive. And that reaction, um, if we are met by other people, if the, if the injury comes from an outside force like predation or um, tsunamis or forest fires or whatever, the number one thing we have inside of us, and we know this neurobiologically, is other people. Other people is our first line of defense. And when a human hurts us, there's nothing inside the human being that can comprehend that. And there's nothing inside that can manage that type of pain. So when that pain happens, it gets encapsulated by a dissociative barrier because we still need to bond. We bond first and foremost with everything. And if that bond doesn't go right, we hurt. And then if that bond comes back again, so if we start to care, right? So a lot of times I get people in my office, I'm fully capable of caring for their feelings. I'm fully capable of their weird, strange, odd behaviors that come from being hurt by other people. You know, I've been doing this for a long time and I think it's been about 10 years since I've been shocked or scared or upset or not know what to do. So I'm fully capable of handling people's feelings. And that's an odd feeling for a lot of trauma survivors to experience because most of the care that they've been given has been um, meant to groom or meant to lure them in or meant to... Um, put down their defenses in order to hurt them. So they're very cautious of care. That's one reason why they're cautious of care. The other reason is, is that the minute you care for a human being, all the material from the pain and the trauma comes forward because it's seeking help. It's looking for care because that's human. And so all of this pain comes forward. All of this suffering comes forward. But if it happened a long time ago when you were a kid, there's no context. There's no, there's no voice inside your head saying, oh, the feeling that you're having right now is the feeling that you had as an infant when you were left in a bed alone for two days. That's too abstract for a child. That's too um, difficult for a child. But pain of that is very present in the, in the body of the child. And so it, there's this gap of information and they tend to blame the person that is sitting there. They tend to blame the carer. 
And I think this is kind of how this misogyny patriarchy started growing, was that it, it is very challenging to, to um, heal human to human harm. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of consistency. Um, it takes a lot. There's a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of ruptures. There's a lot of um, fear and terror in, in getting a person to learn to trust themselves and to learn the language of their own selves. The, medial, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex is fully capable of doing this. It's fully capable of going in and healing and repairing what happened. But if you don't know how to do it because it's never been done. It's not going to occur to you what to do. So that makes it challenging. But I think if we were to sum summarize it simply, it is that it hurts too much. And there's not enough scaffolding for us and repetitive scaffolding to have those open upsets and then to be caught by another. Most people have these open upsets and then they go alone and then they bury it again with dissociation. So much of a richness that you went from Africa to and all of, and now you're writing a novel and here you had this uh, writing inability. I mean, what a courageous moment for you. I mean, good, bravo for you. And also how we in our lives right now in this pandemic, in this uh, institutional racism, you've talked about misogyny. We have a moment for us to be aware and how it is that we go seek those who will help us to be safe in order to heal. And are there methods or ways that you could help us? Because um, having had trauma myself and having had to learn how to live in it and then reintegrate into a life that, that is extraordinarily meaningful and successful, there are moments in time right now where I think we're all just saying, could you help us to be safe? Can you help us if we have had things in our lives so that we can heal and have an integrated life? Yeah, I, I think there's so many institutions that, that don't understand this. Okay. I, I'm not a huge fan of psychiatry at the moment, and I'm not particularly quiet about it. I'm not a huge fan of psychology at the moment, and I'm not particularly quiet about it. So the, the notion of evidence-based practice or evidence-based theory, evidence-based methods is really a lot of gobbledygook. What they're studying or what they say they're studying isn't actually what they're studying. And, and there's this push that this that certain manualized types of therapies are superior therapies to human relationships. And that's just not the case. We need a safe other. All of our neurobiology is designed to find and seek out safe others. The trouble is, if you don't know what safety is inside your body, it's, you're gonna, it's gonna be registered as something odd. And if your body has always experienced difficulty or trauma, then it's gonna register that new oddness as a new trauma. Um, honestly, if I had my wish, I would, I would, we would have these care centers. We would have these all-inclusive treatment centers where we start from pregnancy all the way up to um, assistance with legal help, assistance with medical help so that some people can go there and have a complete safe overhaul from how they sleep to how they eat, to how they move, to how they walk, to how they exercise, to how they read, to how they like just having people regulate them. We do know that modalities like sensory motor psychotherapy, there's not a lot of scientific evidence, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that it is a superior type of therapy because it's incredibly relational and it's in the body. 
It's um, how does that uh, what does that look like? Sensory motor psychotherapy. Um, it takes. I. I'm, I've been in, practicing it for 15 years, and I think I got it about four years ago. It took me a long time to really comprehend what it is. But basically what it's trying to do it, it, in, a, in a psychotherapy session, you try to help the person understand their sensations. Like So feeling their sensations, you direct them mindfully to their sensations, and you try to slow things down so that the sensations, which always will lead to a feeling gets correctly labeled because most of our inner sensations are ignored, denied, dismissed, dissociated. Our feelings that go with those sensations of, of you know, um, when the body's moving into a state of an active state of defense, you can actually feel the lungs starting to move into in preparation of fighting or fleeing. There's going to go a feeling with fear or rage that also goes with that, but they may be disconnected. So sensory motor is really trying to teach people from an embodied place what is actually happening to their bodies so that they can learn the needs that the body is requesting. Because our bodies and our, our feelings, so these are our back childhood, the, the very, very primitive brainstem and the very, very primitive limbic system are the basic brainstems of all lizards and mammals, that, that it's something shared between all creatures on this planet, but they don't think, they don't, they don't logic, they don't, they're not abstract, conceptualized meaning making me mechanics of the brain. They're very cause and effect. The body is always asking for what it needs. And I, this may sound like a crude question. I don't mean it to be crude. It's just something we can all share. I don't know anybody who ever thinks to themselves, mm, my bladder is sufficiently empty. We only think about things we need. So if our minds are busy thinking about things, there's a need there that's not being met. If we have racing thoughts, it's not because we need to manage our thinking. It's because there's a need inside and that need isn't being met. And sensory motor psychotherapy helps align your own needs with your own thoughts. And it's not an easy therapy to do. It's, it's a very challenging therapy to do. Um, conceptualizing it even at the beginning can be kind of tough because it is so different because most of what we deem as being effective is very thinking wise. Yeah. But once again, I question where that comes from. It comes from the same group of people who decided that we were evil humans, um, you know, a hundred years ago, that, that logic is the uh, be all and end all of sanity. And it's not the be all and end all insanity is when the body and the emotions and the feelings and our sensations and our minds are aligned. And this moment in time of integrating all of those things yes. is what you are a champion of. And, and just how I was asked the other day, how do you get out of bed in the morning? Um, and we know that so many people are challenged by the thought or the person, the, the kind of chronic cynic in our head. And it's just tough to put the feet on the floor. Are there methods of this creative meditations that could help people get going? I, I, I imagine you have really been able to help people put their feet on the floor. Well, it depends, right? So if you're lying in bed and your neurobiology is screaming and yelling at you to hide because it feels like everything's so dangerous, sometimes giving yourself permission and being dignified and honoring that desire to hide until you feel safe, that's the honorable thing to do. 
right? So sometimes hiding in bed when you are terrified is the most kind thing you can do for yourself. And, 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 and usually when the body feels safe enough, the body will then get up on its own, right? If you're, if you can't get out of bed, there's a reason why you can't get out of bed. And um, we kind of live in a world that forces a lot of things, forces movement, forces achievement, forces action, forces, 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 forces. And not everybody works that way. People who experience dissociation, their systems are chronically in a state of, of tonic immobility or playing dead. There is no more action that can be taken. Their bodies have probably already attempted to flee. They've already attempted to fight. They've already attempted to do something and they just can't. It's, they're in a position where they can't escape. They can't get out of it and it's not stopping. And so the system freezes down on itself. So safety is our, our most prized possession. So for, for example, when I start doing my meditation, most people are in, instructed to do mindfulness. Mindfulness is A, very, very hard, and B, I, I, honor, I argue that it's impossible to do if you are unsafe. Okay. Absolutely impossible to do because the body will not, the, the mindfulness is really what that ventral medial prefrontal cortex does. It's that front brain structure that is designed to be caring and attentive and attuned to self and others. That brain structure, it's cut off information when we're scared. So the, it becomes hyper aroused or doesn't work at all or it's working overtime. And you start moving into a meditative state, you're going to get an overflood of all of your pain and suffering instantly. And that's just going to make the body dissociate further. So when I start with my creative meditations, I, I start with images and or sensations at the front part of the face, right? So with mindfulness, most people encourage you to begin with breath, feeling the cold. I, um, I will get people to pay attention to the cold, but filling out their sinus cavities. So they're not really paying attention to the body. Because people who are dissociative or experiencing chronic trauma, they don't live in their bodies. It's too painful and it, there's too many unresolved needs. So if you, get, if you focus on the front at first or you focus on a small image, the notion is to focus on it. If you can do it for five seconds and you can hold that image there for five seconds, that's great. That's a huge achievement. If you can hold it there then for 10 seconds, that's another massive achievement. So in, in introducing creative meditations, it's not measured by distance or time. It's measured by achievement. It's measured by, can you focus on this? And as you focus on this, do you still feel safe? If you do not feel safe and you cannot focus it, take it back then just, just focus on either just tactile sensation of rubbing that front part of the brain and just feeling it. And I don't know if you noticed, but if, if you were to try that right now, even just feeling that, putting that pressure there, and then if you can just take a quick peek into your, con in, in, just sort of feel into your body, do you notice a shift? Do you notice a change? It slows you notice down. Yeah, it slows down, right? A slight slowing down. Slowing down is our friend in all of this, right? Trauma happens in an instant. We're trying to slow things down. But we're trying to slow things down enough that the brain can start to do what it's supposed to do and, and start to understand or make meaning or make context of what we feel. So slowing down when we're doing trauma therapy is really, really important. 
once that person can feel comfortable with that level of slow, then we'll move up to a grander image. I, I don't often start with breath because breath opens up the insula, which opens up the floodgates to the, to the upset. So you can even say right there, most mindfulness, when they start with breath, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who they might be able to feel good after breath one, breath two, but after breath three, they're gone again because their information is flowing and, and they're re-experiencing their trauma. So I really, I focus all the images up on that front part of the brain. So if they can hold that tactile feeling, and then I'm, I will move to a simple, small image, like imagine breathing in color, mm. just breathing in a color of air. So you can imagine the visual of the air. And we just do that a little bit. And so sometimes with some of my clients, it can take them a couple of weeks to, to work from sitting there holding an image for five minutes to years. I have some people, but by the time you're able to do it for years, that mindful brain, which is the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, at the end of it is fully capable of doing mindfulness and being able to be embodied. So that it, it just starts really, really, really slow with images. And you're, as a human, desirous of images that help us be safe. And Absolutely. Listening to Absolutely. some of your stories, uh, I can remember hearing you tell the story of your son being sick and the image of the bucket that kept coming back to him triggered things. And maybe part of what you're calling us today is to really spend some time of the images that help us and then those images that trigger us as well so that we can be healing of that. Could you talk a little well, bit? About well, my little peanut, he was three, so I wouldn't exactly quite classify it as a trigger. Um, I would class it, it's, it's, it's the way that a three-year-old learns, right? Like a, a three-year-old doesn't have an abstract concept of a virus inside of his stomach making him sick. It was, it was more projection is probably what it was closer to than a trigger, right? So he was projecting, his, he thought the, the bucket was making him sick. That's what I mean. Like when we, when we talk about the carers hurting us, we assume that it's the carers creating this pain when the pain is actually coming from the inside. But, but a lot of images that I would start out with, sometimes I start with the candle flame. So you can get apps on your phone of a candle. Um, sometimes candles are very triggering because sometimes people get hurt with images of candles or some candles can be used in hurting people. So if the image of the candle is upsetting, you can use a glow stick. Um, there's a glow stick app on, on most phones where you can just look at the glow stick. And if you see the image of the candle and you look at it, look at it, look at it, close your eyes, you should see the after image of the candle inside your eyes, right where all your imagery should be taking place. So it's just sort of an after image and the candle's nice because it sort of leaves some type of after image. Usually most people can see the outline of the candle and you just hold it there, hold it there, hold it there, hold it there. And it's like you're exercising your ventral medial prefrontal cortex. Imagine that you're going to go run a marathon. You know, like I'm, I'm training for an Ironman. And right now I'm spending a lot of my time managing what I eat and making sure that I exercise consistently right now. So that's the bulk of it. I can't go and ride 180 kilometers tomorrow. There's no way I could do that. But in a year's time, because I'm, I'm practicing a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and a little bit every day, I'll know that I, in a year's time, I can do that kind of achievement. And mindfulness and healing is the exact same way. We're exercising brain structures that are capable of managing ourselves all of ourselves. And, and over time, the more that that ventral medial prefrontal cortex works, the more we can actually stay present while we feel our terror. And that's what our terror is seeking. 
presence. And we learn to not be afraid of ourselves on the inside. We learn to not be afraid of how we feel. We learn how to manage and help and care for our suffering, regardless of what's happened. And you're yeah. helping us to know all of those feelings. Trying. Our, it's not, and especially in this time of when we're sheltering in place, when we're trying to be parents with Zoom, when we're trying to find how to have family come and travel, we know that we have a flood of emotions. And I'm so grateful today of you giving us some tools to say, I love you for that emotion. I, I, th this the emotion is, is our, our first language. Those emotions are our very first language. They're, they're an integral part of being a human being. They, they're there in the package. They're part of our hardware. The software inside of us, the thing we learn is how to talk to, understand, treat, manage, and handle our feelings. That's emotional intelligence, and that's the goal. If people were to say, I want to talk to Christine and it, it, as soon as I can, how would they come and find you? Um, I'm very Googleable. Um, if you Google Christine Forner and trauma, I'm probably the first one. Or if you, if you Google even Christine and dissociation, my name should come up. There's going to be probably me and another woman named Christine Couture. Um, I'm also found on my website, which is Associated Counseling up in Canada. Um, my email is readily available as well. I'm, I am fairly busy, so it does take me a few days to sometimes answer some of these emails. But um, my website is at Associated Counseling up in Canada. I want to thank you so much. Uh, you have given us a, a flame, uh, a light, and also a courageous moment on that Ironman. And I wish you the best oh. of that. And I'll be interested to connect once you finish that to see what is your next uh, kind of thing you're, you're going to tackle and what mountain you're going to climb. Because you certainly love to do that. So thank you, Christine. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Time heals all wounds. Join us for our next episode of Healing Stories.